I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Louis Markoff, Chief of the Laboratory of Vector-Borne Virus Diseases at the Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research at the Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Markoff has written a perspective article on the current outbreak of yellow fever in Sudan. Dr. Markoff, as of January 16th, there were 849 cases of yellow fever and 171 related deaths in Sudan. Can you bring us up to date on that? Is the outbreak still ongoing, and has it spread to other areas? From the best I can determine, as of uh, the latest report I can find is from January 23rd, WHO announced that uh, 3 million people had been vaccinated in Darfur during the first and second phases of the vaccination campaign. Um, As I mentioned in my article, had begun in early to mid-November and ended in the first week of January. And this comes from the... uh, WHO Eastern Mediterranean Regional Office. And now they're planning and contemplating a phase three of the vaccination program. The vaccine has arrived in Khartoum, and that phase will have started on the 26th. Uh, Judging from the fact that the increase in cases that we can document from a week-to-week reports from the WHO has diminished dramatically, we can conclude that the vaccination program is having an effect, and there's certainly no reports of spread of the epidemic to either cities of Sudan or outside of Sudan. Beyond Sudan, what is the global distribution of yellow fever? It's basically equatorial South America and sub-Saharan Africa. That's the fast answer. If you take a look at a map of South America and exclude the countries of Uruguay, Chile, and Argentina, it's every country in South America and including Panama. If you look at a map of Africa, then you look at the sub-Saharan region, and it's all of those countries are either endemic or at risk for yellow fever transmission. And that means that not every year is there yellow fever, but there is yellow fever. So that's basically the simplified answer to that question. Yellow fever is a particularly virulent flavovirus. Can you tell us a little bit about the biology of that virus and what makes it so virulent? First of all, yellow fever is the prototypical member of the genus Flavivirus, and of course the name of that genus, Flavi, comes from the Latin word for yellow, so they're all named for yellow fever virus, which was the first to be extensively studied. And all of these viruses have a similar kind of pathogenicity. It's just that yellow fever virus apparently is far more pantropic. Why is that? Well, it may be because um, all these viruses have to gain entry into cells by using their attachment protein, which is called the envelope protein. These are lipid-enveloped RNA viruses, and they attach to receptors on cell surfaces. And some of the species in this genus have more and less capacity to infect cells of the body. Yellow fever is particularly pantropic, as we know. It can infect the myocardium. It can infect the cells of the GI tract pretty much from mouth to anus. Certainly, they can infect, uh, and most importantly, they infect liver cells. None of the other uh, flaviviruses are as tropic for the liver as is yellow fever. And apart from the um, attachment, the fact that the envelope protein of yellow fever may be more promiscuous, uh, another possible reason why yellow fever is more virulent than the other flaviviruses may have to do with its capacity to overcome the innate immune response Uh, There's a lot of evidence in recent years that the outcome of an infection with dengue and West Nile 
particularly, has a lot to do with the ability of the virus to subdue the host innate immune response. And it's quite possible that yellow fever has a, a even greater capacity to do that. So it's a complex question, but that's a simple answer. You know that most people recover from yellow fever after three to six days, but that 15 to 25 percent of patients enter a more toxic second phase, and that can be fatal in about half of cases. Do we know biologically why those patients might have that progression? There is some information on that, but actually surprisingly little, considering how long this disease has been a plague for humans. But it's for sure that um, older individuals and males are uh, particularly prone to develop severe disease. Why would they be? Uh, We don't know really at all about why there's a male risk, increased risk in males. In elderly, older people, it's thought that there's some senescence of the immune system that may play a role. In Africa, where this epidemic is going on in Sudan, Older subjects actually tend to have acquired natural immunity or vaccine-acquired immunity already, and it's really the younger population that are more likely to be uh, subject to infection. And also it's the males who are likely to be exposed because they are working in the outdoor environments of the savanna, which I described in my article. So in Darfur, it is quite likely that most cases are among younger males and children who are not immune. And the outcome of a particular case probably has to do with this interaction of the virus with the innate and adaptive immune responses of the host. I mentioned just now about the capacity of yellow fever virus to overcome the innate response. And the virus has evolved strategies to inhibit, uh, for example, the specifically interferon response. This has been shown for several flaviviruses now to involve a function of the non-structural proteins. That is, uh, the virus genome encodes only a few structural proteins that that make up an actual virus particle, but in a cell, other proteins are synthesized that are there mainly to assist RNA replication and virion morphogenesis. But these non-structural proteins have an ancillary function to overcome the innate immune response, specifically in some cases by inhibiting the function of the STAT proteins that are necessary uh, early intermediate. In, in that. Um, and also, yellow fever has this capacity to induce pro-inflammatory cytokines, like especially TNF-alpha and IL-1 and beta-2 microglobulins, that seem in the late phase of the disease to contribute hugely to uh, the severity of the disease and possibly to uh, death. Uh, the patients who die of the disease typically develop a cytokine storm Uh, Interestingly, things that you would think would predispose to severe disease like malnutrition and pregnancy have not been documented to result in a more severe case of yellow fever. However, uh, symptomatic HIV with T-cells less than 200, uh, those subjects are very much prone to more severe disease. Are there any treatments available or in development, or is prevention our only hope? Well, at the moment, the uh, recommended course of action is supportive only. That's the standard of care, and that includes fluid balance, transfusion using fresh frozen plasma for bleeding, vasopressors are used as needed, IV glucose is often needed because uh, in the course of severe disease, severe hypoglycemia can occur. Nasogastric suction is recommended to prevent uh, 
gastric distension and, and reduce the risk of aspiration. Now, there are uh, antivirals under development, but one issue in this field for yellow fever is the economic one. There's not much demand for these kinds of drugs for yellow fever. However, yellow fever may uh, benefit uh, tangentially because of work on drugs uh, treatment for hepatitis C, which is a related, another member of the family Flaviviridae, although hepatitis C virus is its own genus. Uh, drugs that work for hepatitis C in some cases also have some efficacy against flaviviruses in vitro. There are three animal models for yellow fever disease that are pretty good. Certain monkeys like Cinemalgus monkeys and African green monkeys uh, are good models for yellow fever. Hamsters have been developed since around 2000 as a, a small animal model for yellow fever, and they develop an illness that very much mimics human disease, except one must use a hamster-adapted yellow fever virus, so one can't use the hamster to test the virulence of human isolates, for example, directly from humans. And in mice, there's a strain that lacks interferon, alpha, and beta receptors uh, that develop a pantropic infection with hepatitis, uh, including hepatitis, that's even can be seen when you give them a 17D vaccine. But because these mice lack the innate immune response and because that's such an important factor in studying the real pathogenesis in humans, there are limitations to what you can do with these mice. One commonly known antiviral, ribavirin, has activity against yellow fever virus in vitro, that is in cell culture, and it is effective in monkeys and hamsters if you treat them before you challenge them with live virus. Of course, that won't apply in the natural setting. And the doses that are needed in these animals on a per kilogram basis are higher than doses used clinically when ribavirin is used to treat, say, arenavirus and other RNA virus infections where it has some clinical efficacy. And another drug worth mentioning that's not purely experimental is ivermectin, which is an anti-helminthic drug, and that has some activity in cell culture against yellow fever. And so do drugs that potentially enhance the interferon response. For example, poly-IC. There's a double-stranded RNA that induces interferon. And uh, passive antibody therapy has been tried in severe cases, but there's no evidence that it really does anything. What can you tell us about the available vaccines, which have been around for 70 years? Vaccines, all vaccines are, are called 17D vaccines. These vaccines all began um, at the Rockefeller Institute in the 1930s, starting with a virulent isolate of yellow fever virus that was a, a strain, a CB, which is named after the man from whom the virus was isolated. And this is in the pre-tissue culture era of virology. So the virus was passaged at the Rockefeller, uh, first in mouse embryos for uh, 15 or 20 passages, and then from then on passage in chick embryos. And they kept testing the virus as they went for its virulence in the monkey model. And when they got to the point where they had uh, attenuated the virus for virulence in monkeys, that eventually became the vaccine. Somewhere along the way, an uh, isolate was given off to uh, scientists in Brazil, and so Brazil independently developed its own uh, vaccine, which is called 17DD. And our vaccines are all derived from 17D204. It's, they are really regarded as one and the same. But since the year 
or seven manufacturers around the world making the vaccine, and there are some small differences in how they are manufactured. Although these vaccines can be regarded as identical, uh, there are small differences. No one has defined any uh, advantages or disadvantages to any particular product. There have been problems establishing or maintaining yellow fever vaccination programs in a number of politically unstable or poor countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Is there a, an effort by the international community to address those gaps? Yes, this is um, primarily a general effort to help second and third world countries have vaccine programs. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, stands at the center of, of this effort. In the case of Yellow fever, another important player actually in all these vaccination programs is GAVI, which is short for the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. And as regards use of these vaccines, what happens in practice is that the requesting country, which is having an epidemic, for example, goes to the WHO, which serves as the secretariat for a group called the YFICG. This is a group of organizations, including UNICEF, uh, Medicines Sans Frontieres, UN, and the Red Crescent, and the Red Cross. They review the request for vaccine and go back with their approval to the WHO. WHO then contacts UNICEF, and UNICEF actually is the source of the vaccine. Gavi provides a stockpile of about 6 million doses of yellow fever vaccine for UNICEF to dispense. And one of the interesting rules of Gavi is that the beneficiary country must eventually repay the costs of the vaccine. There's a document that talks about specific costs per dose. I think in the case of Sudan, there are other countries and other organizations jumped in to help Sudan to uh, pay for the requisite number of doses that were used in this campaign. Thank you, Dr. Markov. The opinions expressed in this interview are those of Dr. Markov and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Food and Drug Administration.